with marketing, it's such an involving practice, like things that are working now probably didn't exist five years ago. So as a marketer, you could never be completely in the know of everything. So I was just a big sponge, you soak it all up and just learn on the fly. And I've made terrible mistakes, but then if they work, you scale up quickly. I'm Eric Fulweiler, and this is Scratch, bringing you marketing lessons from the leading brands and brains rewriting the rulebook from scratch for the world of today. Hey everyone, my guests today are Jasper Martens, CMO, and Rachel Oku, the VP of Brand and Comms at PensionBee. For those in the UK, you probably know who PensionBee are already. For those not in the UK, PensionBee is a leading online pension provider, helping you transfer your old pensions into one new plan, which is a big thing over here in the UK. We're going to be talking about their recent brand campaign, Be Pension Confident, which shows how they use real customers in the actual campaign, real experiences, you know, not actors, customers of the company that are in these campaigns, which I think is really important. Um, the other thing that's really interesting is Jasper was the number two hire at Pension B. So one, it's interesting that a company like this hired a marketer so early. And two, it's really interesting to hear him talk about the journey and how he has evolved, not just the brands, but how he's evolved the function of marketing over that time, leading up all the way to the IPO that they did on the London Stock Exchange last April. So a couple other things that I think you're really going to enjoy, how they talk about like actually being customer centric. I think customer centricity is a word that's thrown around so much and so many businesses don't actually do it or they think they do. I think it gets talked about more than it actually gets done. And with this campaign, and as you'll hear, actually the culture within the company, it is very customer centric and they have a couple ideas about how any business can be doing more of that. They also talk about how they build community around the Pension B brand. And then it's also interesting to hear uh, Rachel talk about how she managed the communications process around the IPO. Hope you enjoyed today's episode. Thanks. All right. I am here with Jasper and Rachel from Pension B. Thank you, both of you, for being here with me today. How are you doing, Rachel? Let's start with you. How's your day? How's your week? How's your month going? Yeah, very well, thank you. It is very busy at the moment, um, but all in a good way. We're doing lots of exciting planning for 2022. So, um, yeah, very much looking forward to winding up the projects we have going this year and starting off in January um, afresh. Amazing. And Jasper, how are you doing? I'm doing absolutely fine. Yeah. Um, same as Rachel. We still have our campaigns running uh, at the moment uh, on various uh, channels, but it's, we are fully in 2022 mode already. Great. All right. Well, maybe we'll have a chance to talk about how you're prepping for 2022, because I know for today, we're going to be focused on the recent campaign that you've launched, Be Pension Confident, which I have to say, and maybe it's partially because I'm coming from the financial services world, but I just see it everywhere. Um, so focus group of one, you definitely seem to be driving that awareness that I'm sure you're looking for. But let's get into it. So uh, maybe we can start with just a quick overview of the campaign. What's it about? I know there's a key part of it that's actually using real customers in the ads, and we'll include a bunch of the ads in the show notes for people to go and watch. Um, but let's start, Rachel, maybe you could just give us a quick overview of the campaign and what it's all about for you. 
So our Pension Confident campaign is about moving away from our product-led messaging and talking more about how our product makes our customers feel. So we feature four customers in the advertising, uh, well, last year's advertising campaign, which was the, the starting point, and it pictures them floating. They're actually levitating uh, because we wanted to convey that once they sort out their pension and get their retirement savings back on track, they actually feel a burden taken off, you know, that weight comes off their shoulders and they can just, you know, float along happily, know that they're planning and on track for a happy retirement. Great. So Jasper, question that I had for you, um, which I like to ask all, all of our guests, because we kind of have this case study format of actually digging, digging into a specific campaign. What was the business challenge or opportunity that you were trying to solve for with this campaign? How did you approach it? And you know, knowing you a little bit, I know that I'm sure it stemmed from, hey, here's what we need to deliver for the business. It wasn't just kind of marketing for the sake of marketing. So what was that challenge or opportunity that you were trying to solve for with this campaign? So I think one key thing with our Pension Confident campaign is, like Rachel said, adding that emotional layer in our advertising. So moving away from just the functional aspect of what Pension B can offer to customers. And what we found is that uh, this has been growing quite aggressively in the last couple of years. But are customers trusting you enough um, and uh, are they transferring all of their pensions to pension B or they just want to try you out with a small pension? And I think with the Point Pension Confident campaign, one, building trust. First of all, by using our own customers, I can tell as much as I want how great pension B is. It's better just to listen to our customers and tell uh, and let the customers tell how they feel about pension B and what pension B can do for them. Um, the second part is that people make financial decisions based on facts, but also based on emotions. And Pension B is solving a really, really uh, common problem that many people have. And that is you've got these multiple pension pots. They're scattered all over the place. You have no idea what's in them. You don't know where they are, actually. Uh, you know you need to sort this out. But how does pension B make you feel when you, once you're actually on top of that? So what you're doing there is you're uh, using the benefits of our product, our functional, functional element to it. And then you add this really positive vibe, this positive emotion that those weight is lifted off your shoulder. And that's a very like welcome breeze in financial services where if I look at a many advertising, it's always about you not, you're not saving enough for retirement. Um, and actually giving some positivity and that emotion you feel when you're actually on top of it. And that's the direction of travel. And we, we saw that if we would not go down that route, we might just end up as another pension consolidator. And if I would show you a yellow ad with a phone on it, and I would replace the yellow with the green or with purple, you might actually think it's another product. Yeah. So that's why adding these emotional layers in your advertising makes your brand more distinct, more memorable, but also people are much more encouraged not just to transfer to you or open an account, but actually trust you with all of their pension life savings. So you are becoming the provider of choice. So that was the challenge and the opportunity that we saw by start using the pension confidence thing. So I'm curious um, on the customer-centric piece of it. So, so I think that 
successful brands. They could be challenger brands. They also could be incumbent businesses that are doing their marketing well and effectively. They are able to build what I'd call a human brand. And to me, that is three things. It's being purpose-led, customer-centric, and being able to build a community around what you stand for. So I'd, I'd love to talk about that a little bit more and specifically the customer-centric piece of it because I think that it is easier, still a ton of businesses that don't do it or don't do it well. It, not easy to do, but I think it's easier for people to grasp the concept of coming up with a campaign that's customer-centric, going out and talking to customers, potentially even including them in the advertising like you've done. But doing it consistently, I think that's harder. So I'd be curious if you have something you can share on this. How do you make sure that being customer-centric isn't just something you do every three, six, nine months when you have a big campaign like this and is actually something that your team or the business lives and breathes consistently? Um, if I could take that one, I think. So first of all, we've got five company values. One company value is love. That's a very unusual value for a brand, a financial brand. Um, loving your customers. So loving the team, loving each other as a team, but also loving the customers. And that means that if you love your customer, then you need to listen to them. And that's what PensionMe has done from day one, whether that is through quantitative uh, feedback, which we get through customers uh, talking to us, chatting to us, emailing us, or more, I would say, the deep dives, uh, qualitative uh, research. We've got a customer voice team at PensionB, uh, consists of specialists that conduct research, listening, panels, um, helps also us selecting customers if we want to talk to them or we want to use them for our campaigns. It's a 20, well, I wouldn't say 24-7, we do go to sleep, but I would say it's a 365-day-a-year affair. It needs to be ingrained in your company. Um, and I think the fact that love is one of our core five values, I think it says to me of us doing that. Um, and I think that's sometimes where uh, things might go a little bit wrong, where um, we just do an annual survey, we listen and we get some feedback. We probably shove it into a drawer in, in our desks. But actually, um, that's one of those things I think that's really important. Um, and I think, Rachel, um, the other thing that I think would be really memorable is what you've done with the fossil fuel free um, uh, launch, because that actually came from customers. Yeah, absolutely. So we surveyed the customers in one of our in one of our plans um, back in 2020, early 2020, and they told us that they wanted to do more with their more with their investments. So the plan they're invested in has an engagement strategy. So they use their shareholder votes to try and push companies to make positive changes. And they were looking for a plan that actually moved away from oil altogether, didn't adopt this engagement strategy and divested instead. So we listened to what they had to say. We went to our money managers and tried to find a plan that met their needs. And there wasn't actually one in existence. So we spent around a year campaigning, uh, lobbying our money managers, trying to find a product that was suitable and then get customer support. Uh, we had to get 100 million pounds of customer pledges in order to launch the fund, which we managed to do by December of last year. Amazing. Um, so it's come come around completely on the back of our customers' wishes, and we still continually survey them. We tweak our plans as much as we can in line with their feedback, and if necessary, go back out to market and look for something else that meets their meets their changing needs. I think the listening to your customers and they telling you that they want this. I think the power then is then to look at, can we make this happen? Can we actually 
develop a product that suits their needs. The fossil fuel free plan that we've launched this year has actually been one of our fastest growing um, uh, plans and customers really like it. And it's actually really challenged us also in terms of from a marketing perspective, how do you incorporate those messages into your overall proposition to pension B. But it's a fascinating cycle of continuously listening to your customers and not just change the message on your billboard, but it's sometimes going as deep as coming up with a product that your customer actually wants. Yeah. I actually had a question teed up for later about the um, push to get rid of fossil fuel investments in pensions. So you beat me to it. And that I, I thought it might have something to do with being customer-centric and listening to your customers. So that's great. I also want to say, this was another Easter egg question that I had, that I thought I'd maybe get to later. But going back to what you were saying, Jasper, about the values and the first one being love, as we were prepping for this interview, Lan, our producer, was saying, they're just so nice. You know, the emails that she had with you, the, the interaction that she had, just, they're just really nice people. So from us, at least, that idea of love in all touch points, you know, at least at this point, we are not customers. Maybe we will be at some point, but it definitely comes across. So uh, well, let's you. dig into the nitty gritty. Sorry, Rachel. Did you want to build on that? I, I was just going to say thank you. And just that, you know, I think Jasper mentioned earlier that love is how we treat our customers and how we behave outwardly, but we also do that internally. And it's a big component of our culture. Um, and yeah, Pension B is a is a great place to work and we seem to attract very like-minded individuals um, yeah. to the team. Yeah, and I think it's, um, you know, there's so much time spent on trying to kind of figure out culture and build culture and it is the most important thing. It's the foundation for any change, any growth, anything that you want to do if you're a team of more than one. And yet where I think most people, not where they get caught up, but I fundamentally believe that culture, much like brand, is not what you say it is. It's what other people say it is. So you could say whatever values you want, but if people like me or certainly your customers don't feel it, then it really doesn't matter. And so I think that's also what's interesting about, and I don't know if it was intentional or explicit or just has come across this way to me, having your customers tell the brand story, I think is a powerful way to do it because it's those people that decide who your brand is at the end of the day, not you sitting in the marketing team. You might have an idea of what you want it to be, but they get to make the final decision. Yeah, absolutely. And we've always used customers on marketing right right from our very first billboard campaign through to now. And I don't think that's something we'll ever change. You know, at the end of the day, as, as you've said, our customers can speak to the true value that our product gives them and you know, we encourage them to be completely honest and to say what they really think. And I think that definitely comes through. So take us through the kind of actual nitty gritty of how you brought this campaign to life in the early days. Did you kind of write a brief and then go to an agency pitch? Did you know who you were going to work with? How did you get people on board and actually start the journey of figuring out this campaign and how you wanted to do it? Um, I think it's come back for quite a while. Um, so... When you, st when you start a company like Pension B and you're starting it really from scratch, what you're effectively doing as a marketeer is you get given a quite a small budget and you have to test as many channels, as you, marketing channels, if you possibly can against the lowest possible budget and see which channels actually like stick or you can get traction, you can get growth through the door. So initially you're really looking for functional messaging, product market fits and try to see if it all works. But at one point, what was becoming clear is that we were actually getting customers and it was quite successful. Uh, first of all, there's so many money you can spend on digital lower funnel 
conversion channels until you start to see diminishing returns. And I think it's a common problem many companies face. And in fintech, it's not different. So you will find that there are so many people who are kind of like in the consideration mode. Second bit that we came, to, we started to look at uh, working with uh, a more branded campaign is that we were attracting a lot of customers, but we were attracting quite a group of young customers. They really want to try us out. It's a new app. It's a new product. It's fantastic. But what about those people of 50 plus and over that actually really could use us and really get a comfortable retirement? And that's where we, we didn't really reach them. We weren't really, they weren't considering us as a, as a serious brand. And therefore, it was, we had to go above the line. We had to invest upper funnel in more brand related activity. And then you can do a couple of things. You can go to a really big fancy agency and they serve you excellent coffee at their pitch. Uh, and they've got really fancy offices and, and a nice deck. Lots of people in the room. All I was thinking when I was visiting them, oh my God, I have to pay for all of this. How on earth can I can do this with this amount of budget? And actually, and this is for me also, it's not just for small brands to consider, but also for bigger brands, is the agency model is also evolving. And it's probably moving away from these big agencies that will only come out of bed for God knows half a million pounds for a creative concept. So we actually end up working with, um, I would say, uh, three people who used to work at those big agencies, got tons of experience and thought, actually, we don't want to work in this environment anymore. And they moved to a more smaller, I would say, partnership. So they've got a really small agency. They're three really smart brains, but they've got the black book to match it when it comes to finding a radio producer or shooting a, a billboard campaign. And that for me felt like a much more comfortable setup. So we were able to um, uh, go on TV in yeah. January 2019. We were spending £30,000 on advertising on TV in January, which is a tiny budget for TV, just daytime slots. And the commercials we were using, I think we spent 10 grand on it. Like it was really cheap to produce. They weren't the best possible, but actually they looked pretty cool. They, they actually looked really cool. We were first customers shot on Western Supermare on the beach. He was very happy using Pension B. And those ads, they were really flying. And therefore, we started then to see the opportunity of TV. We were able to measure it properly. We could see how many installs, how many signups we got within five minutes of one of those daytime slots. Uh, put a CPA on it and noticed that actually this looks pretty good. And therefore, we started to do slightly more and more TV uh, then we then your production budget suddenly goes from 10 grand to 25 grand for a TV spot and so forth. So I think the process for us was really about start small, test small and see if you've got traction. Um, I would say, what's your minimum advertisable product um, um, uh, in terms of what, what can you get away with? And then when it starts to really scale, then you can also put more money behind it. Um, and then we move into radio. We did exactly the same approach. The first TV, the first radio commercials were very cheap to produce, but now we can get some nice voice actors in and we can spend more money on it. So that's the process we followed. These guys, um, and they're called the Builders Arms, by the way, um, the, um, also they challenged us. So they said at one point, team, you have to focus on those emotions that your customers are telling you 
their feeling and therefore they challenged us. And um, we were very nervous because urologists stick a phone uh, on the billboard and say, combine in under five minutes, sign up now. Um, and if if I could, you know, we, if I could put like a, a URL on it so I can measure the impact, you have to throw that overboard at some point. You really have to focus on that being truly unique. They challenged us. So I think the story here for me is that if you feel it's time to invest in brands, don't just go straight away to a massive agency because you're spending so much money on uh, developing that creative concept and there's hardly anything left to advertise. You can actually sort small and then scale up when you start to see the effects. Yeah. And I think you also don't know with big agencies and having spent a lot of time in that world, you also don't know who you're going to get because the team on the pitch yeah. is usually not the team that's actually going to be on your business and agencies, especially for creative at the end of the day, it's, it's the person like forget the name yeah. on the wall. It's whoever is on your business. But I think yes. um, just to draw out a couple things from what you said, because I see this as a consistent perspective and um, principle that many challenger brands do very well. The idea of start small, which I think, every, you know, well, maybe not. I don't know. Maybe, you know, bigger businesses don't do that naturally. But I think a lot of people are there of like, okay, I'm going to test a bunch of different things and see what works. But I think the other thing that challengers do really well is they double, triple, quadruple down on something as soon as they see it's working. They leave no juice left in the orange when they start to see those results. And that seems like something that that you're really driving and, and doing at Pension B. And the other thing that's amazing, I think people think of going above the line in TV as like, all right, I need a six, if not seven figure budget to go do that. In today's day and age, you can actually start pretty small with that. And you know the trackability, I would say, maybe is not perfect and totally depend. If you have an app and it's a download business or it's a direct traffic website business, then maybe, but it can be tricky for other businesses for sure. Um, but there's definitely an opportunity now to be testing that a little bit more often. It's no longer the realm of just the big traditional incumb incumbent brands. So um, Rachel, how about you? Any kind of learnings from this whole uh, experience of bringing this campaign to life? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think it is just around, you know, customers and just really championing our customers' voices um, and making sure that they're always in advertising, no matter how big we get, how much, you know, more budget we have to spend, that we always stay true to our, our core values and always let our customers shine through. Amazing. So um, let's talk about the community angle here. And um you know, Jasper, when we were at that dinner, whenever it was, I remember you talking about some of the, some of the kind of nomenclature and the puns that you use all around B and bees. And I think, you know, it's kind of silly and it's funny, but it, I think it genuinely does help to build a sense of community around the brand. So could you talk to me? I remember beekeepers was one of them. I think that's your customer support I'm not sure what you call them, but those people. But can you talk about how you've, and I don't know if it was a marketing thing or a leadership thing in general, how did that come to life? How do you make it real? Yeah, how do you make it kind of significant for people and not just kind of like a, hey, we're a startup, therefore we have funny names for people. How does it become a real thing that helps to build the brand and build trust in the brand as well, I'd imagine? Well, it is as sticky as honey, isn't it? So um, just to stay, <laughs> oh, just to stay in that area, oh God, yeah, I know, bad, bad pun. Um, I say the, what, 
What makes your brand rememberable? Now, first of all, I can go down the list of the predictable ones for a financial brand like Pension B, um, good pension product, good investment managers, fair fee, and and, and all the and everything. But um, uh, having a really yellow, distinctive uh, branding also really helps. But we call Pension B, and B is where B is collecting. Um, uh, nectar and that we uh, and 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 kind of like um, if you turn it into translatable things instead of calling somebody an account manager or a case manager you call them a beekeeper uh, a pension administrator who administer your pension is called a nectar collector your online account is your beehive where, every, where all your pension pots are coming together pots honey pots pots pension pots so it just becomes much more memorable for a customer and as long as you do it in a way that doesn't sound childish or people don't take you seriously this is just another gimmick but uh, if you strike the right tone then people it will stick with you. You will remember it. It's it's incredibly helpful to uh, build a, a brand awareness amongst pension savers in this case. And I would say if you would compare any of our other brands who might not use it so consistently, um, they become they are less memorable. Um, the other thing is our customers actually, you, you can see it in the word bubbles that we get through customer communication um, and customer feedback. So on Trustpilot, for example, the amount of times people talk about my beekeeper, blah, blah, is like, is being really helpful in transferring my pensions. It sticks with people. Mm. And I think as long as you strike the right tone, it's not childish at all. And I don't think we're planning on ditching it anytime soon. So is your CEO the queen bee? Oh um, yes, she definitely is. Um, and I think one of her, I think her dad actually came up with the brand name Pension Bee. I'm just, I'm just looking at right. just the case in it. So um, yeah. because of the bee, the beehive, you're collecting stuff. Um, it goes pretty deep actually, because at Pension Bee, although you can open a new pension, most customers will actually sign up by combining their old pensions from previous jobs in a new plan. So what you're doing is you're collecting your money you already have bringing that into one pot, one place, and therefore you help to grow your, your, your savings. And um, it's, it's really, it's actually remarkably similar <laughs> of what bees do in nature. Hence, that's why she came up with Pension Bee. Very sticky, as you said. I know, so sticky. All right. Um, I would love to talk a little bit about, so Pension B went public on the London Stock Exchange back in April. Rachel, I understand you had a big role to play in uh, the marketing and the communications around the IPO process. You even won Best IPO Communications Award, which I didn't know was a thing, but sounds great. And congratulations. Um, Thank you. I'd love to hear a little bit about that process. I think it'd be really interesting for our audience, whether they're in a business that might be going public or just for a event that's so important and sensitive, how you approach managing marketing and communications for something like that. Sure. So at our time of, you know, going full acceleration to towards an IPA, it was at the height of the pandemic. So our challenge was how we create something that helps tell our brand story, hits all of the key investment highlights for investors without being able to do those in-person investor roadshows um, and to really kind of tour and, and get in front of people. So we settled on 
the idea of creating a, a brand documentary. So we created one that was quite IPO focused, which we put on our investor relations centre in the run up to the IPO. And then subsequently, we've turned it into some evergreen content um, around our, our brand. But that was really instrumental in telling our story and, and conveying the Pension B journey from when we were founded in 2014, right up to um, just for IPO this year. And just that strong growth trajectory um, and everything that you know, investors, whether they were retail investors, because we opened an offer up to our customers, so they could also take part in our IPO, or larger institutional investors, um, the message was exactly the same. And how, um, there's obviously the external component to that. I would imagine the internal process and coordination and alignment with leadership and the rest of the people involved in the IPO process was really key as well. Can you talk a little bit about how you approach that? Yeah, absolutely. So we ended up uh, featuring pretty much every member of the senior leadership team in in the video. So we hired a location for a week. Um, we got everybody in. People were in kind of in, in half day shifts. And the feedback we got from the team was actually quite interesting because it was one of the first times that they'd left the house um, during lockdown. So, you know, it was lockdown, but also, you know, you're in an IPO bubble. You're just working a lot. A lot of hard work goes into it. So it was almost a chance for people to come onto the set and to, even though we were filming something quite serious and, you know, we had a lot of um, important information to convey, we still managed to make it fun. And it was it was a nice day out for, for the team members. So I think, you know, the cooperation that we had was amazing. Um, and everybody really gave it lots of energy, which I think comes across in the in the final piece. I think also for me, from my standpoint of view, because, you know, I had to show up on Rachel's film set for half a day <laughs> to talk about uh, Pension Beast marketing. Um, the interesting thing is uh, I have no comparison, but I'm not comparison because this has been my first IPO uh, process I've ever been in in my career. But normally what I understand is when you are on an IPO roadshow, and you're going to talk to key investors, you're going to visit them. So um, in this case, I wasn't. I was doing it all for my st study on uh, in my home uh, and talking to investors in in a couple of weeks that we were talking to loads of them. Now, one of the key things that came up from the roadshow, uh, and we knew that was going to happen. I'm very happy that was the case. Lots of investors asked the same questions. And they were all gathered around um, how are you going to approach marketing, um, uh, what, what's driving the business, et cetera, et cetera. Of course, that was going to happen. But they were very much the same set of questions. And because we were also offering Pension B, uh, Pension B customers to invest in the business, we had to explain what makes Pension B so unique. And in, video brings things to life. A prospectus gives you the detail and the depth needed to make a good investment decision. But video brings things to life and put a face on what we're doing. We also, again, we included real customers in this particular product. So one, you are answering your most commonly asked questions by um, institutional professional investors which uh, you can address directly, but also you can help your own customers who are looking to invest in, in the IPO um, 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 to bring that story to life. And I think that's why the video worked so well, even with the whole COVID-19 pandemic raging. I think we recorded this in January, I believe, uh, end of January. We all were all at home um, and being able to do that, um, bringing things to life, um, um, was very crucial for us. 
The brand documentary, is that, are those the clips that you sent over ahead of time or is that something different? I is think a, those are snippets from the, snippets from the bigger, it. from the bigger, yeah, snippets because if, if, the, yeah. the IPO, the, the IPO documentary, I believe was around 15 minutes because you do need to go into every single detail of the offering. Um, and uh, we, we turned some of these clips, again, still the startup vibes, we turned some of these uh, clips into snippets that we can really use to um, uh, on other parts of, of our customer journey um, because they are just as valuable. Okay, cool. And is the full documentary something that we can include in the show notes? Is that a public thing? Yeah, absolutely. So I, I can send you a link to that. It's on our YouTube channel. That'd be amazing. Thank you. Um, so Jasper, I had a question for you. So Eric, Eric, yeah, Eric, there is, there is definitely some lockdown hair going on. So I do want to put a big <laughs> disclaimer on that video once you start sharing it. Fair enough. Yeah. We had hair and makeup in full PPC, but we couldn't quite arrange haircuts for everybody. Um, uh, so yes, it's, it's definitely clearly everyone's a little, little bit scruffier than usual. <laughs> Good to know. Um, okay. So Jasper, I had a question for you. It must have been amazing seeing this IPO happen, having been the second hire at this company and having overseen marketing from the very beginning, being part of the leadership team from the very beginning. So I'm curious, well, how long have you been there now? Since September 2015. 2015, so six years. How has marketing evolved over that time? Because you've taken it, you know, I don't know how you define yourself if you're still a startup, but you've certainly taken it from a very small business and a brand that nobody knew about to now a full function, you know, at scale marketing department and a brand that has pretty good awareness across the UK. What's that journey been like for you? And if there's anything you can share about how, if there were kind of like chapter, I don't know how you saw it, but if there were like specific differences where you like leveled it up to a different level how did you take something that was so small and take it all the way through to an ipo brand wow um well first of all it's been an amazing experience it's an experience that i don't want to repeat um <laughs> uh, i think you do this once in your lifetime uh, i got the opportunity with the team to build a brand from scratch and bring it to almost adulthood really i think when you are ipoing I feel you definitely leave your startup jacket behind and you are a serious brand to contend with in the market. Um, it's, it's amazing. Like I came from a company where I had a nice job. Uh, um, I was head of marketing at an insurance provider and um, was doing lots of, I came from a performance marketing background, then did more brand campaigns, but ultimately um, Pension B gave me the opportunity to really build something from scratch. And oh boy, from day one, um, I had to write a press release. Then I had to test a PPC campaign. I am not a native English speaker, as you probably can hear. I'm Dutch. So how do I do a press release? And then Romy, my, my boss, CEO, had to then, um, um, you know, correct spelling mistakes on my, and it was a sea of red and I could absolutely cry. It was, it was horrible. Um, and long days um, and hardly any money to spend. I mean, you are leaving your ego at the front door. Absolutely. And so if you've been in marketing for a long time and you're stepping into a startup like that, there is, if you've had an ego, it's gone or you have to leave it at the door because you won't survive. So for me, I felt very exposed 
And also with marketing, it's such an evolving um, uh, practice, like things that are working now probably didn't exist five years ago. So as a marketer, you could never be completely in the know of everything. So I was just a big sponge. You soak it all up and just learn on the fly. And I've made terrible mistakes. Um, um, I've also made mistakes that cost us quite a bit of money. And I got the eye from uh, Romy and Jonathan, the co-founders, like, what did you do again? But then again, uh, they encouraged me to test and learn, test things small as small as you can. Sometimes they were not as small. They were a bit bigger than I was anticipating, but we all make those mistakes. Um, but then if they work, you scale up quickly. And that's something I've really learned that um, it's okay to make mistakes. You have to test small, scale up quickly. That's been the biggest learning curve. And to be honest, it's nice to um, now have a great team. Like very quickly, we were able to hire people and, you know, we're doing it together. I'm not doing it alone. We're doing it together. I've got an amazing team uh, working uh, on making Pension B a success. But those first days, uh, Eric, were uh, horrifying sometimes. Um, and also fantastic when the first customer signed up in March 2016, we hit the bell. And on uh, one stage, you have to get rid of the bell because they're signing up quite a few times per hour. So that's a fantastic process to see and to see happening. Amazing. All right. Um, so anything else that we didn't touch on? Any other kind of perspectives or learnings that either of you wanted to share today? Um, so I think I think the big challenge, Eric, for Pension B uh, for ne- going into next year is you're as good as your last campaign. Um, and especially now post-IPO, um, we have definitely some serious growth ambitions at, uh, to really be that leading online pension provider. And I think one of the challenges we are looking at right now is that we want to make pensions simple and engaging so you can look forward to happy retirement. But simple doesn't mean basic. And customers need to understand. And we need to, well, we need to get that message across that when customers join Pension B, they're actually getting a really high quality pension, like really good money managers. It's a really good uh, way to save for happy retirement. So what we sometimes see is that customers sign up maybe with one or two small pots to try us out. How can we convince those customers to transfer all of their money to Pension B so we are becoming their provider of choice for happy retirement, not just a, a provider on the site? That is the key challenge yeah. here. And I think more than ever, brand advertising and really b- uh, bringing home those values that customers give confidence that we are the provider of choice, that's the challenge here. And uh, yeah, I wouldn't say it keep me, keeps me awake at night, but it's something that's yeah, really on my mind. Thing. Yeah, and I think it's yeah. true. Um, and you know, the word trust comes to mind as we talked about before, because I think that it, for a lot of challengers, but definitely in the financial services world for fintechs and challenger banks, I think of but also a business like yours, I think we're kind of at this point where a lot of them have gained a lot of mind share and market share. But now the question is, can they turn the page to actually be the predominant or the primary financial service provider for people? So it sounds yeah. like that's the challenge that you're thinking about too. Yeah. And Eric, we've got, we've got the ingredients, in my opinion, as in our retention rate is 95% plus. So when customers join us, they don't leave. And I just feel that if we can make those customers 
confident to transfer all of their money, what that actually will mean is that they have everything in one place. It has tremendous amounts of benefits. From a business perspective, it means that the revenue you earn on a customer will also be yeah. uh, better. So yeah. efficiencies there are to be had. And our target is to become profitable in 2023. And uh, aside from huge customer numbers, and we are seeing those numbers, customers signing up in droves, it's really important that we also make sure that we keep improving the quality of those customers. And one key factor is um, transferring all of your pots or start adding contributions. Um, that means that we need to improve the engagement of our product. It means that we are integrating open banking features into the beehive. So you can uh, do roundup savings. You can see when uh, when you change jobs, we can be able to see that. So you can transfer, we can automatically transfer that if you like to, um, et cetera, et cetera. So I think that's the challenge ahead for us. It's great to give people sense of relief when they're finally on top of their pensions, are they on top of all their pensions is question one. Mm-hmm. Are they not secretly missing out on some of those pots when they sign up? And two, can we give them enough confidence when they are using our product to really build that happy retirement? So any contributions, any other pots that are coming in throughout their working life and stay with us until they reach retirement and beyond. Great. Rachel, any last thoughts or comments from you? Yeah, I... I- realize that when we were talking about our fossil fuel free plan I didn't actually explain what it was so just for clarity the fossil fuel free plan invests in over 900 global companies but deliberately excludes those firms with proven or probable reserves of oil gas or coal Um, it also excludes investment in controversial weapons manufacturers tobacco companies um, and also companies that don't meet the uh, UN UN global compact Um, So what it does invest in is companies that are aligned with the Paris Agreement um, and plans that are ready for the transition to um, to a low-carbon future. Amazing. And if you have um, like a landing page or something, you can send that over and we'll include it in the show notes as well. So we are out of time, but Jasper, Rachel, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Really enjoyed it. Um, should people what what should people go to to check out more of the work that you're doing? First of all, pensionb.com is the is the right place to go, or you can download our app to find out what we do. And um, I would definitely check out our fossil fuel free uh, page. We can read more about the plan. You can find it on our website too. All right, thank you so much. Have a great rest of your day. Right. So this week, I'm excited to share with you all an organization that I've been involved in for the last few months and have really enjoyed participating in and have learned a lot. So um, here today with me, we have Lucy Cutter, who is the president of Bloom UK for 2021. She's going to tell us a little bit about Bloom, why it exists, how people can get involved. But Lucy, thank you so much for making the time and coming on to chat about what you're up to with Bloom. Uh, No, thank you very much for inviting me. Um, So Bloom is a professional network for women in communications. It's a volunteer network um, and we're in its 11th year of running, which is amazing. Um, We have over 500 members. Um, We also have 350 mentees and 70 boosters. So all of the mentees have around kind of one to five years experience. all of our members have seven years plus 
and our boosters kind of sit in that two-year gap so they've got kind of between five and six years experience to kind of bridge the gap between coming becoming a mentee to becoming a member um so that's kind of a little bit about what bloom is um in terms of what we uh, try to accomplish, we're all about empowering women to be whoever they want to be. Um, we see ourselves as the real voices in the industry um, and we're all about um, creating gender equality within the industry. There's kind of like three approaches to doing that. Um, the first one is around spearheading industry change um, through the exchange, which you've just briefly heard about, um, but also through some of our wider initiatives. So a recent example is our parenting playbook, um, which we collated from um, 200 kind of um, data points across the industry. And this survey basically offers us practical advice and initiatives which can be implemented within the workplace to create a positive and more effective experience for those um, pre, during or post maternity leave. Um, we also have Future Proof Women's Careers. So we do this through enriching events like our Bloomfest event, which we had in November. Um, but we also host lots of inspirational and motivational kind of speakers and communications to all of our members on a monthly basis. Um, and finally, we pay it forward, um, which is our third kind of um, initiative. And it, this is all our mentoring programs. So as I said, we've got a mentoring program for 350 women um, matched up with 350 Bloom members. So I think it's the largest mentoring program in the industry. Um, we also um, uh, pair up with a company called Believe or a charity called Believe um, and this is about empowering women to be whoever they want to be and to achieve leadership roles um, and we also have a charity partner Women's Aid um, so every year we donate a huge amount of money to such an important charity um, which is Women's Aid. So that's a little bit about Bloom um, and what we do um, in terms of if you want to find out more then please head to our website which is bloomnetwork.uk um, you can also follow us on all socials so on twitter um, linkedin and instagram so just look for bloom network uk and you should be able to find us and follow us and hear all of our latest news um, and how you can join bloom next year amazing and i will say for me being part of that exchange I've been lucky enough to be paired up with an amazing woman and we've kind of had this monthly check-in over the last few months and shared perspectives and ideas and feedback and support and it's definitely helped me grow um, as a manager, as a professional, just as a person. So I've really enjoyed being a part of it and hopefully as we grow and the team here at Rival grows, we can get more people involved as well. Lucy, I have to ask, I know, so Bloom is only UK. For people that are listening in Europe, US or further afield, do you know any similar organizations that do something like this? Um, I know lots of the countries have um, similar kind of organisations um, or kind of volunteer networks. We have at Bloom tried to set up Bloom Global, so you know, as there's been quite a lot of international travel and people have moved around um, within the industry. Um, so if anyone is interested in kind of talking to Bloom about how they could set up Bloom UK um, into one of their local markets, then please get in touch and that's definitely a conversation that we can have. Yeah. Amazing. Great. Well, Lucy, thanks so much for coming on and we'll include some links to Bloom in the show notes. So really hope some people listening can check it out and apply and get involved. Brilliant. Thank you. Take care. 
Scratch is a production of Rival. We are a marketing innovation consultancy that helps businesses develop strategies and capabilities to grow faster. If you want to learn more about us, check out wearerival.com. If you want to connect with me, email me at eric at wearerival.com or find me on LinkedIn. If you enjoyed today's show, please subscribe, share with anyone you think might enjoy it, and please do leave us a review. Thanks for listening and see you next week.